Hey, this is David Shoemaker. This week on The Mask Man Show, I talk to WWE Universal Champion Kevin Owens. I've known I deserve this since the moment I stepped foot in this ring. You can listen to the full show by subscribing to Channel 33 on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Ben Lindbergh and I'm a staff writer for TheRinger.com, joined as always by my fellow writer for The Ringer, Michael Bauman. Hello, Michael. Hello. We're still here. Yeah. Baseball is, is not, but we are. Feels like it's been a while since we've done one of these, although it hasn't been all that long. We had an episode last week. But, yeah, it's uh, been a little over a week. You know, I, I don't know if uh, our listeners struggle with object permanence, but you know, we, <laughs> we continue to, to exist even when uh, when baseball doesn't. <laughs> well, since then, you've been sunning yourself in Aruba or Cancun. Yeah, and Cancun, I wore my yeah. I, I wore my Sonoma Stompers T-shirt oh, the nice. first day on the beach. Would you like to know how many people came up to me and asked <laughs> asked if I knew the famous Ben Lindbergh? <laughs> I can guess. I'm not big in Cancun, really. I was, yeah. I was expecting, you know, somebody to pick up on my, you know, <laughs> baseball inside joke, but no yeah, dice. Sorry. Well, the world has changed since we last spoke on a podcast. Yeah. It's a, it's a different world this week. John Danks is, is coming back. If you had asked me last week, I would have said his career might be over. But now, John Danks still a baseball player. One week changes everything. I would have been less surprised to hear Jesus Christ is coming back than <laughs> John Danks. Yeah, that that would fit right in with the rest of the, the yeah. recent news cycle, I would say. We're definitely living a, a pre-millennial tribulation eschatology <laughs> right now. So later in this episode, we are going to talk to Twin Slugger. Yes, we can describe him accurately as a slugger. Brian Dozier. We caught him in the car on his way to stock some wildlife. Yeah, I'm a little disappointed. I'm not sure there's a baseball podcast. I'm Well, I guess, you know, I'm making assumptions, but I'm guessing you're not well equipped to ask questions about deer hunting either. Not at all. Yeah. No. <laughs> we should have Chipper Jones on to talk about killing animals mm-hmm. at some point. A subject matter expert, but we talked to Brian and smart guy and a very interesting player. So we'll get to him shortly, but a bit of banter before we do it. I think we have a couple broad topics to talk about. One is the Astros who are making every move these days, but probably before that, award talk. I think the award voting proved more interesting than I would have expected in a couple of ways, although I'm not really a an awards enthusiast, do you have any non-MVP takes you want to get to before we talk about Trout? I think the only one that I really disagreed with was uh, Porcel for AL Cy Young. But even that, like, you know, I took a lot of flack during my awards column for not even mentioning him. You know, I thought it was pretty clear Kluber won sale too. But, you know, if you don't have the first five or six years of Porcello's career in the back of your mind is baggage. You know, that's a 145 ERA plus and 220 innings in a not particularly strong class. Like, this is not a miscarriage of, of BBWAA justice, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, if you had just told me that Porcello won, I I would have been surprised and very mildly disapproving, probably, yeah. but but not, not taken aback. I think the fact that he did not get the most first-place votes, although he had a very large lead over Verlander in second place votes and then the fact that two voters did not have Verlander on their ballots and 
if they had placed him high enough on their ballots, then Verlander would have won. So, you know, I mean, there was a lot of scrutiny about the way that Porcello won or the way that Verlander didn't win, but it was a weak class, or at least it was a class without a very obvious favorite. And Porcello had a good year, and yeah, maybe it came down to the win-loss record a little more than it should have, but it's not something I'm going to lose sleep over this winter. No, certainly. I don't know if there's anything in the in this awards class I'm going to lose sleep over now that you know, no. we can use that as a, a segue. Well, I was just, you know, uh, speaking very myopically in this small, trivial world of baseball that we inhabit. Uh, <laughs> how surprised were you that, that Trout actually won? Extremely, actually. I I think, uh, you know, I was a little surprised earlier in the week that Michael Fulmer won as easily as he did. If that was like a two on the surprise scale, a trout is probably like a six or a seven. I was very surprised, at least at least that high, because obviously there's been a pattern with trout voting in that he's always the best player in baseball and he only wins the MVP award when the Angels are good. And now the pattern is broken. Yeah. So I've got two theories on why Trout might not win. And one is the old access thing that people like if you just total up the war, or make your own judgment based on the public record, it's doesn't like if, if you're someone who's in the clubhouse every day, that doesn't make it feel like you add a whole lot in terms of insight. Like there was a guy who who voted for David Ortiz first and said he picked him over Betts because he felt more dangerous. Like he talked to American League managers and Ortiz felt more dangerous coming up in clutch spots, even though Mookie Betts put up ridiculous numbers uh, with men in scoring position uh, this year. So like it's looking for, I think sometimes it's looking for and, and magnifying the what you don't get watching at home on TV or, or reading about it or, you know, whatever, uh, mm-hmm. to sort of justify that position of access. And the other thing is, I think voters just get tired of voting for the same guy over and over, mm-hmm. which, you know, has plagued Mickey Mantle all the way back in the 50s, for instance. Um, and it's been a while since they gave it to Trout, so maybe they're just not tired of Trout anymore. Yeah, I, that could be it. I mean, he should have, what, five of these things now? And he has two. I think... It's it's interesting because his previous losses, I think, sort of devalued the award for me. So now that he's won it, I'm less excited than I would have been if he hadn't lost the previous times. Because, you know, we had those big drawn out battles about Cabrera and yeah. Trout and it was a referendum on the way that you view baseball. And and it was it happened right at the same time as that Hall of Fame class without anybody from the, the writer's ballot, too. Yeah, right. And so... I think when he lost those couple times, I think a lot of people who had argued vociferously that he should win then kind of took it as a reason not to care about the MVP award. You know, like, okay, if you're if you're not going to give it to the guy who's clearly the best player in baseball and you're going to award it based on the best player on a good team, which is just not as interesting an award. I think it's legitimate to interpret the MVP that way. If you want to, you can parse valuable however you want and the instructions don't specify. So I don't think it's wrong exactly, but I think that's just not a very interesting award. I don't care about who the the best player on a playoff team was. You could have a separate award for that if you want, but who's the best player in baseball? That's a fun award. So I think that 
when he didn't win, a lot of us just sort of threw up our hands and said, okay, well, (laughs) we're not going to care about this award anymore. And so now that he's won, when all of us were either preparing to just shrug it off or get mad again, I almost didn't know what to do. Like, oh, okay, great. Good job this time. (laughs) So... Do you have any theories about why he won? Because this is not the first time in history that a a player on a losing team has won the award. I think Dan Hirsch tweeted that it's the fourth time that the war leader in both leagues has won. Chris Bryant won also in the NL. And I think Jay Jaffe looked up the history of losing team winners. So Ernie Banks did it a couple times. Andre Dawson did it. Cal Ripken did it. A-Rod did it. So do you see this as a sign of some sort of sweeping change in the electorate, or is it just a fluke like those other years were flukes? Well, I mean, apart from Trout being substantially the best player in the American League for all that's, you know, for all <laughs> sure. the good that's done him in the past. <laughs> yeah. I I just wonder if we got like a weird slice of the of the electorate this year. Because yeah, we don't, right. you know, it's only 30 voters, in, right? Yeah, so yeah, could be however many two per city. It isn't the same ones every year. So I, you know, just don't know if the, if the stars align to get the right 30 people voting on it this year. That, that would probably right. be my, my theory other than people are just sort of coming to their senses. Yeah. So small sample. Sort and of. I also <laughs> like, I don't think Betts is, was like that compelling a narrative candidate either. Like he was the best player on a playoff team, certainly, but like he wasn't, you know, this, this wasn't Jimmy Rollins in 2007 or anything like that. Like he wasn't, nobody would have said that he was the, the heart and soul of that team. And he dragged, uh, or that he dragged a, a lackluster team to the playoffs or anything like that. You know, he was just one superstar in a lineup full of superstars. Yeah. And he's not, you know, he hasn't been at this level for a very long time. So maybe there are some people who don't quite realize yet how great he is. I don't even know. But maybe it's just that he's new enough. Although I was going to say young enough, but the age difference between the two really isn't that big. Is he even younger than Trout? I think he's younger, right? But only by like... uh, Oh, no, he's, he's more than a year younger. I realized just now that I've memorized Mike Trout's birthday. Which... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Trout is uh, August of 91, and Betts is October, October of 92. 92 yeah. Okay, so yeah, it's a difference, but it's not as big a difference as you would think based on how long each of them has been in the league and been great. And by the way, Chris Bryant is older than Betts, January 92, so not much younger than Trout at all. So, yeah, maybe it was that. I mean, maybe Betts probably gets dinged for the same reasons Trout got dinged in the past, right? And that he's an all-around player who's just really good at everything, and he's a great defender, and he's good on the bases, and he gets on base, and he kind of does everything well, but didn't lead the league in anything. Well, actually, he led the league in in total bases, bases, (laughs) which is pretty important, but, you know, not really a, a stat that everyone can just cite off the cuff. So that could be part of it. But yeah, I mean, it's it's nice, I think, because we're so used to the story of Trout being the underappreciated superstar. And that's partially because the Angels have been bad. It's partially because he's not the most charismatic and quotable player out there. And it's partially his skill set, or at least it has been in the past. So 
it's nice for now we can just appreciate yeah. Trout and everyone is appreciating him equally and and that's uh, that's okay. Justice was done. Yeah. 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 All right. So the Astros have been making some moves in the last few days. So we haven't uh, had a chance to talk much hot stove. There hasn't been all that much hot stove to talk about yet. But the Astros have been the busiest team. They signed Charlie Morton a couple days ago. They traded for Brian McCann. And then on the same day, they signed Josh Reddick. So they've been busy and they entered the winter as one of the best projected teams for 2017. So what's going on here? Is Jeff Luna building a super team? Well, I don't I don't know that either McCann or Reddick is, <laughs> you know, an above average player. I think both of them, you know, I don't think the hole of catcher was as bad as you might think when you factor in Jason Castro's framing numbers from last year. Yeah. Uh, but most of all, I think this is encouraging because the Astros and, you know, I've criticized them incessantly for this. So you know, I need to give them a little bit of credit now for actually going out and spending a little bit of money. That uh-huh. They've got a competitive team in the fourth largest city in the U.S., which probably overstates like the monetary value of the market size, maybe a little bit based on how interested people are in baseball down here in Houston. But, you know, they've got all this, they've got all this young talent, they've got the best double play combination in baseball locked up from now until the second coming for middle reliever money between the two mm-hmm. of them. And they've been spending like the O3 Expos. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, they're going out and spending $7 million a year on rotation depth. They're spending $15 million a year less, whatever the the Yankees pulled out. I think that's about five and change that the the Yankees are eating out of McCann's contract. And they're paying something like $12 million a year for, you know, an average corner outfielder. So, you know, Mm -hmm. I think that's, it's a lineup that I don't think has any holes right now and how it all fits together. Like, I think the, it might have been Buster Olney who tweeted out a projected lineup that has Guriel at first base. And, you know, I might be a little more inclined to to move George Springer to center and put Guriel in left and try AJ Reed again. But, you know, how AJ Hinch has, has put pieces together in creative ways throughout his tenure with the Astros. So I imagine he'll do the same again. You know, Reddick's a perfectly good league average corner outfielder, uh, mm-hmm. get on base, play defense, and. Yeah, I think he'll be. I don't know that you know. I'd go four years, but it's not my yeah, money. Yeah, right. And they've, they've got plenty yeah. of spend. So yeah, I I don't think I would have guessed that he would get a four year deal, but the per year amount is is not Just exorbitant. Fine. So yeah. yeah, that's that's the other thing. Like the sticker shock for more than ten million dollars a year. Like that's that's what a win and a half costs now. Right. Yes. We constantly have to adjust our expectations and our understanding of what the going rate is for everything at the beginning of each offseason. So keep that in mind as you see the first few contracts roll in. And yeah, I mean, my, my super team question was somewhat facetious, but I think they are now the third best projected team, according to Fangrass, after those transactions. And as you said, they, they have some pieces to move around. And I think probably the most obvious weakness is what it was last year, too, yeah. which, you know, the rotation. and Right. Uh, Third best feels aggre- aggressive not knowing what the inside <laughs> of Keiko and McCullers' arms look like. Yes, not to mention Charlie Morton. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I think you know, Morton's a nice little speculative pickup in a weak market, but not someone you can count on for innings, obviously. So 
they will have to continue to shore that up a bit. But yeah, you're right. I think the payroll is back above latter-day Ed Wade team levels. So they are spending, and I think their outlook is just about as good as any non-Cubs team as far as the, the young players they have under control and their ability to spend. And they were my AL West favorite coming into the offseason and adding a, a couple average players, and Charlie Morton doesn't change that. So I think they've gotten a, a good start to what figured to be a, a pretty active offseason. Yeah, uh, two quick things on one on the McCann, one on Morton. McCann, if he's still fun policing, is going to have a lot of fun with the Rangers. And uh, <laughs> I don't know that it's ever been better to be a baseball fan and live in Texas than it might be in the the, the next couple of years. Yeah. Um, and the other thing I, I wanted to uh, repeat something that Mike Bates from SB Nation said that about Borden, he said it didn't make sense when he was thinking of it as you need five starting pitchers. But if you think of it as you need 162 starts, then it all starts to come together. So, you know, we saw yeah. that that was it sort of worked for the Dodgers last year, but I know I was looking through, through that prism. I think it makes a little more sense. The Dodgers must be mad that Charlie Morton slipped through their grasp. He's the perfect Dodgers pitcher. All right. So shall we move on to Mr. Dozier? Let's go. All right. So we are joined now by twin second baseman, Brian Dozier. Brian, how are you? Thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Thanks for having me guys. Doing well. So you obviously had one of the, the more interesting seasons, I think, one of the more fascinating seasons in Major League Baseball and, and just playing one of the best seasons also. So I want to ask you about that because, you know, I think the gain in power that you had this year maybe looks a little more extreme than it was just because of how home runs ticked up all over baseball. You, you've kind of been putting on a little bit of slugging percentage every season you've been in the big leagues so far, but... Do you feel like a different kind of guy now when you walk up to the plate? I mean, between now and, say, college, for instance, when you weren't a big power hitter and coming up through the minors when that wasn't really what you were known for? Well, you know, in regards to that, you kind of got to take a step back all the way to probably my second year in the big leagues with kind of utilizing and getting the feel for hitting home runs and not just home runs, extra base hits. But you got to go back to then in 2013, we made a couple adjustments in my swing and that kind of thing. But what it boils down to is each and every year you try to find a way to, to get better. And uh, one of the things going into spring training that me and my uh, hitting coach, Tom Brunanski, we really wanted to work on was not necessarily using the whole field because, you know, off the, my career so far, you know, I always hit around two you know, 40, 50, whatever, and uh, that there's more hits over to the right side and up the middle and that kind of thing. But I, trying to utilize the whole field in terms of power, really backspinning balls to left center and right center, whether they go out or not or off the wall, it's uh, either one I'll take. But the fact of really trying to backspin balls through the middle of the field rather than jerk things down the line, and uh, which I thought to myself that it would probably be uh, reduce my power uh, just mm -hmm. a little bit. But it actually um, – in a total reversal way, the, I started uh, develop the habit of really staying behind the ball is what you like to do is what uh, I guess me and Bruno's terminology uh, was staying behind the ball and, and trying to hit everything out to, to center field. Uh, I know I pulled, still pulled the majority of my home runs, but uh, just that mindset of staying through balls and staying behind balls kind of uh, transformed everything a lot for me this year. So 
you know, I talked to Jose Altuve uh, this summer when about his breakout year, and he, you know, talks about how there's one thing he wants to work on every off season, and you know, this this past season it was his plate discipline. Are you the same way, or are you just you know, taking a more generalized approach? Uh, a little bit of both. You know, one one of the things that I always say each and every off season, I want to uh, I want to steal more bases. Uh, you know, for the next year, I, I always you know, fifteen to twenty or twenty five. I, I always feel like I can get more especially as the season progresses, you look up and you only stole, you know, 20, uh, which is still a certain amount, but that's always things I want to get better as far as being a better base runner. But uh, as far as the hitting standpoint, I always try not to lose focus of the success that you had the previous year and and try to bottle that up and make some changes. And uh, obviously hitting, I don't know, 28 or whatever it was a couple of years ago, you know, I wanted to keep the same approach and keep the mindset or whatever, but tweak a little things. And that's uh, this past off season. Uh, obviously, I'll never have the the hitting aspect of the game of baseball figured out. But at the same time, it's uh, I'm more comfortable in the box uh, more than I ever have been. So you mentioned, you know, the the pull rate, and you you did have the highest pull rate in baseball last year, and the third highest fly ball rate. So pulling fly balls is is sort of your trademark, I guess. And what is it about your swing that lends itself to that? Is it something about the swing path? Is it something about where you stand, your stance, or your approach at the plate? Well, uh, I was fortunate enough to have a lot of good teammates so far in my first five, six years. And one of them was Josh Willingham. And when I kind of, so to speak, turned the corner after my rookie year, getting back up from AAA and uh, having a little success, he he, uh, he was very. He's a, if you remember Josh, he was a pull hitter. He, he always said that. Why well, does everybody try to hit him out to right center when the shortest distance is down the left field line? So, I kind of took uh, I kind of took that to heart and and uh, try to get the ball out in front. I guess so to so to speak. Which over time kind of developed some habits as far as jerking the ball rather than still backspitting balls to left field, and uh, and that's kind of one one of the biggest things as far as. Um, uh, what I uh, changed this year uh, would still be that pull hitter, but still stay behind more balls and really start backspinning more balls. And uh, it happened to see uh, the power jump up rather than decrease. So. Mm-hmm. And is that the big difference between, say, April and May when you were slumping and then after that when you were one of the hottest hitters in the world? How did you sort of work on that? Did you do a lot of T work or were there other drills that you did? Uh, you know, no, it's, it's just the fact that, you know, we, me and Bruno worked heavily on uh, everything, what I just said, in spring training. And it was just, uh, you know, for me, it was just a matter of time when everything starts to totally click, to be honest with you. It's, you know, I always get the first half questions of the first month and everything. Everybody likes to, you know, break down, well, these these three weeks, you know, what would you do differently? And, and what <laughs> yeah. it all boils down to, it's just it's just a game of baseball. You, you slump sometimes, you don't feel as good, you, you line out eight times in a row and you didn't show up in the stats and that's just how it is but then at the same time when you started seeing uh home run it's like jim Tomey always always said that home runs come come in bunches they come in bunches all the time and they did uh towards the middle and the end of the season so but at the same time it's uh, an overall year uh, i wasn't pleased with the team results but uh i'll take uh, i'll take the 42 homers so. yeah and sort of on that same topic you can i imagine you can tell when you're feeling good but like at what point does a season like this change for in your mind from i'm having a good couple weeks to i've hit 23 home runs in two months like at what point do you become aware of of you know i'm gonna be a 42 home run hitter well you know it's it's something that it's a question I get all the time. Are you a 40 home run hitter and all that? You know, I don't know. I, I, 
I joke around and say, no, I'll try, I might hit 50 next year. I don't. <laughs> but no, it's the fact that it's the fact that home runs do come in bunches. Uh, sometimes more than ever. And obviously, the most in my career was this past uh, this past season and, and the little stretch that I had. But I don't know. It's it's not like I'm gonna. My, my goal is to hit 42 homers or anything. I don't care if I hit 15 next year, as long as we. We're a winning baseball team. I could care less about all that other stuff. So, And so if pitchers sort of know your strength or, or know your hottest zone, you know, if they know that, oh, well, if I throw him a pitch up and in, he's going to hit this thing over the fence. I mean, did you notice them more and more trying to avoid that, trying to pitch you low and away? And if so, what can you do to counteract that? Can you give us a sense of sort of the adjustments and counter adjustments that have gone on over the last few seasons since you sort of established yourself as a power hitter? Yeah, well, they um, one of the biggest, well, I wouldn't say the biggest thing, but one main thing with everything is I do. The, my, you know, from about 2013, 14, and 15, I was really a guy that stood on top of the plate a lot in order to get the head out and to cover, you know, cover the whole plate, so to speak, by keeping my hands, I guess, close to my body and utilizing that strength, I guess, to pull the ball. And with, with doing so this year, like I said, a lot, we did a lot of things in spring training, Bruno and I, of, of backing off the plate uh, a lot in order to get extended. And it actually helped me cover more, a majority of the plate that was kind of a cat and mouse game where the fact that a lot of pitchers always knew that I was on top of the plate and now that you see so much space and talking with a lot of pitchers, especially on our staff, that, that kind of, you notice those things, I guess, so to speak, and guys that are very far off the plate, uh, but it helped me cover more of the plate, especially with the idea of staying behind balls rather than trying to get out in front and jerking balls. And that was kind of a cat and mouse game until I got really comfortable uh, doing that. And uh, once I did it, it it um it took off for me so one of the things that makes you a really interesting player to me is how all of this sort of came together you know kind of late you know you weren't a, a major league regular until you know your mid 20s and you were an eighth round pick at a you know southern miss is it's not like a division three school but it's not like lsu either so you know what was that coming up through the minors you know not having that kind of expectations what did you expect from from yourself and how you know how has it been you know turning into a guy who's going to get mvp votes this year uh well to be honest with you <laughs> it's kind of been my whole entire life um you know when it even reverts back to the fact that i wanted to go play at sec school and then everyone of them told me that i wasn't good enough and so i guess you know, you had to fall back, so to speak, on Southern Miss, which is a great baseball school and uh, probably the best decision I've ever made in my life. I actually call Hattiesburg home where Southern Miss is now. I call that home, my wife and I. And uh, and then, um, I don't know, and then being an eighth-round pick, signed for nothing, and I was never going to be anything more than a utility guy. And I don't know, I think uh, and even this year, I did it each and every day, uh, uh, online, social media, that kind of thing, where – uh, you'll never live up to the 42 again, that kind of thing. And bring, oh, you know, it, it's each and every time. And that stuff, as an athlete, that fuels you just to uh, – that's kind of been my motivation my whole life. And, uh, no matter what happens, I understand that you're out to prove people wrong. And uh, that's always kind of been my, uh, the fuel for me, uh, uh, so to speak, the underdog. I like that. Did you have a backup plan? Like, did you know what you were going to do if you were at a baseball by 23-24? Uh, well, I, uh, I, I think I would have a backup plan. I consider myself a decently smart guy, but, uh, I went into school to, uh, at first being an accountant, uh, my dad's an accountant and 
but then after my first intermediate accounting class, my second year, I uh, called my dad and said, I will no longer ever be a CPA. <laughs> uh, so I dropped, I, I dropped, uh, dropped that course, changed my major to marketing. Um, but uh, as far as the actual backup plan, I, I do a lot of business on the side. I'm with real estate and that kind of thing. So that's something I'm involved with, but, but baseball, I guess uh, right now is my calling, uh, until I, uh, Found out otherwise what it is. You've mentioned Tom Brunanski a, a few times now, and he's been your hitting coach for most of your career, and, and he won't be back with the Twins next year. So do you expect that to be a, a big absence in your day-to-day life, or have you learned the lessons and, and you'll be able to kind of carry them forward even if he's not in the dugout every day? Yeah, uh, you know, being being biased and being the fact that me and Bruno have worked together since uh, double A actually and yeah. so that's say the past seven years, eight years, whatever it is. You know, from my from my personal standpoint, I hate I hate it. I hate the fact that he's gone and uh, getting you know fired and that kind of thing because he's an exceptional coach. He's done a lot, a lot for me in my career dating back to even when we were in triple A and going to play golf together and him kind of seeing something in my golf swing and changed everything as far as developing power in my baseball swing. I mean, everything. I could go on and on. And he's been a huge help to me that I owe a lot of a lot to. But at the same time, I do recognize the business, and, uh, and it's unfortunate. But you know, the, with the with the new uh, brass that we have, they seem to uh, to know what they're doing. They're pretty got their heads on their shoulders and they're moving in the right direction. So. Um, so I'm still excited uh, for the future, but at the same time, it's, it's tough to see Bruno go. And you know, what do you make of the front office shakeup? You know, on the there's probably a, a few levels that it has to filter through to actually affect your day to day life. But you know, the, the team is sort of going in a different direction. So you know, what's that that like to to watch? Well, first things first. Uh, Terry Ryan, one of the best men in baseball. Uh, I loved him more than anything. He's he's a guy that gave me a chance and a guy I respect more than anybody in the game and uh so I owe a lot to him but at the same time like I just said it, I recognize the business and that kind of thing and it, it all fell on our shoulders as far as losing the past four or five years or whatever it was and uh, we take responsibility for that but uh, we recognize the fact that somebody's got to go and that's unfortunate but at the same time with um with Derek and Thad coming in I have not met either one of them yet I watched uh, bits and pieces of their press conference and watched a couple of interviews and everything and I tell you what it's it's exciting for me the fact that uh, you bring in um, a couple of young guys with uh, their goals and ambitions of, of sustaining sustaining a, a, a winning ball club uh, for a long period of time and, and doing some things that uh, that haven't been done in the twins organization for a long time bringing more analytical people in and and or whatnot and all this kind of things that uh, that are on their plate to do uh, this off season is uh, it's going to be exciting. I'm looking forward to it and look forward to meeting. Are you interested in sort of the the new methods of baseball analysis? I've seen some interviews with you where you know you've talked about how people's understanding of what makes a good hitter has evolved over the years, and it's not just batting average and RBI now. And you take lots of other things into account. Are you interested in that sort of thing? You talk to Glenn Perkins a lot. Uh, I'm not as much as Glenn is. Uh, <laughs> I think it is helpful to a certain extent, uh, but uh, from what I watched and, and heard of, of Derek and Thad, that they're very uh, much into the sabermetrical analytical part of the game, but also not going against uh, the feel, people with good feel for the game and uh, right. determining uh, 
you know, you, you show me somebody which kind of you show me somebody that can measure on a piece of paper a, a guy's heart and determination to outdo uh, that guy standing six, 60 feet from him, and uh, you show me that on paper. So it's it's the fact of, of balancing both acts and bringing it all together in order to uh, to be a better ball club, and that's what it's all about. You don't want to get overwhelmed by the fact of all these numbers and everything. A, a guy sitting behind a computer trying to trying to dictate who should be where and what what lineup and all this kind of stuff. That doesn't make any sense to me. But at the same time, utilizing that along with other things and elements of the game to to make a team better. I like that idea. And they're going to have, you know, some pretty exciting young players to work with. You know, not only guys like you, but, you know, Miguel Sano and Byron Buxton and Max Kepler. Are you finding yourself taking on that role that you described, you know, Jim Tomey or Josh Willingham having as sort of a, you know, teaching the young guys the ropes? No, absolutely, and I've been fortunate enough to have leaders on our team in the past with Justin Morneau and uh, even Jim Tomlin, like I mentioned, and Josh Willingham, and, and uh, obviously two years ago, Torrey Hunter, one of the better leaders I've ever been around. But he, uh, all the guys, you take bits and pieces, you learn from them um, how to, to lead a baseball team, uh, which a lot of times, you know, it doesn't always correspond with, uh, when having a good leader to 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 wins a uh, number of wins in the win column, so which is the tough part. But at the same time, I, I am I've always feel like even through college, high school, and minor leagues, and uh, at the pro level, I've always embraced the fact of you know other guys, younger guys looking to me to try to lead a ball club, and I embrace that and uh, I enjoy it. And then uh, this year was a big uh, step forward with that with me uh, of being a leader of this team and and being able to talk to. Uh, the three names, the three, Max Kepler and Sanos and Buxton and those guys. Um, yeah, it, that's something I've always embraced and I enjoy. So. And what's that been like as a, you know, sort of an established starter hearing about, oh, you should see Sanos' power or how fast Buxton is, and then watching them actually come up and then and seeing it in person? No, it, it's been great. You know, I, think, thinking of them, I always like to put myself in their shoes and think how I was as a as a rookie and, uh, to where I am now, I guess so to speak, more more mental mentally than physically, and and uh, I mean you see all these the young talents across the game. They, you know you got the tools. I mean it, everybody's got the tools. That's the thing. You wouldn't be um, you wouldn't be up here. The fact of overcoming, lear- learning how to fail, because a lot of these guys, like you just mentioned, it's the first time that uh, they've ever failed before in their entire life. To be honest with you. And uh, learning how to fail and deal with failure and how you react to failure, and then uh, carrying yourself as a professional. You're, you know, they're one of the better players uh, in the whole entire world, and uh, you know some of the things that you do, you have to act like a professional. And so th- that that's always a learning experience. But at the same time, when you talk about talent, uh, the talent's always going to be there, uh, especially the th- three of those guys that you just mentioned. It's all about uh, doing the little things in order to. Um, sustained success I guess up here and I guess it's inevitable when you're coming off a a very successful individual season that wasn't as successful a season for the team you'll read periodic rumors you know will they explore the market will they see what they can get for this guy is it very important for you not only to to play for a winning team but to stay and play for a winning twins team since that's where you started yeah absolutely man I can tell you it's um and you hear all the rumors, and there always will be of trades and all that kind of stuff. But uh, you know, I signed a four-year deal two years ago with two years remaining to take me to free agency and that kind of thing. And 
but at the same time, we've made it known that that uh, we love it in Minnesota. My wife and I, we want to stay here above and beyond uh, the two years remaining, that kind of thing. But at the same time, we want to win. I want to win more than ever, and I want to be a part of a uh, a winning Twins team. And I feel like uh, with the moves that we made and stuff, and uh, obviously a lot more to uh, to be said of that this off season in the coming years, but I feel like this uh, this organization is trending in in the right direction, and I'm happy to be a part of it. And is part of that, you know, you were a Mississippi guy through and through until the the Twins drafted you. Are you, you know, just now getting it adjusted to the weather and the meat raffles and you know Friday fish fry and stuff like that? You know, how is how is adjusting to Minnesota been? It's been awesome. Uh, this coming year will be my sixth year up there, and um, as mentioned earlier, I feel like I'm a decently smart guy. And the fact that we don't spend the winters by any means in Minnesota, we come <laughs> straight back down to Mississippi. So we're out of Mississippi in the summertime and get rid of the humidity, and then uh, we don't uh, get in the below freezing zero degree weather in Minnesota in the in the off season. So, uh, but my wife Renee, she loves. Uh, Minnesota, it's a very uh, city that reminds us uh, where we're kind of from as far as the fact that the people are extremely nice and uh, welcoming and uh, community work and that kind of thing. And uh, we love it. Um, and like I said, we'd, uh, we'd love to love to be here forever and be part of a, uh, a winning city. So. And speaking of the offseason, what does your offseason look like? Well, I just uh, I got back two days ago from uh, Taiwan and Tokyo. I was my wife and I, we went over to uh, uh, Taiwan and Japan for about two weeks for its Taiwan MLB ambassador tour or whatever, and uh, did a little work over there, and we uh, we came back, and, and now I'm actually driving to my um, my deer hunting land, uh, about two hours away from where I live on the Mississippi River, and going to hunt for a few days and put on put up some, some new stands and check some deer cameras and all that kind of stuff, and I'll be doing that uh for pretty much it. Thanksgiving, head up to North Mississippi to see my family. Same thing with Christmas. But other than that, um, I'll uh, I'll start working out and stuff about probably December 1st, like I usually do, a bat or a ball until after the new year, uh, probably more stretching it into later January. Uh, just depending, all, that all depends on, um, obviously, if selected for the World Baseball Classic or not. But but at the same time, that's, uh, that's pretty much my season. Been that way for a while now, so. So last one from me, uh, you know, you I, only two guys hit more home runs than you did last season. And I think you out homered any other player by by five in the second half. So whatever the conditions were, you took advantage of them more than anyone else. But I wonder just because home runs were up so much, it was a huge year for second basemen as a group offensively and lots of middle infielders added power this year and just across the league. So did you at any point have theories for what was going on, what was producing that sudden change? Did you notice anything different about how the ball was coming off the bat? Yeah, I think um, yeah, I've gotten that question a lot. You know, one of the big one of the biggest things you just have to realize, and it goes for pitching too. That the game has just gotten better. It keeps getting better every year. The, the players you have with the, the amount of information as far as video, strength and conditioning, all that stuff. The, the game keeps getting better. It's night and day from 10 years ago from 20 years ago and the fact that uh, I think people are utilizing and not just at the second, second base position but people are um, uh, are utilizing their strengths and not necessarily worrying about their weaknesses as much and utilizing your strengths and build on that and uh, when you can 
realize the fact that you do have a little power and you take off and run with that strength. And I, I think I see that uh, more than ever across uh, the league. And, and that's why, you know, they worried for so long that strikeouts were up and all that kind of stuff. Well, they're going to be up because there's better pitchers than they were 10 years ago. And there's better pitchers, obviously, 20 years ago. No harder, more movement, that kind of thing. It's going to be up. But at the same time, I think I feel like people just across the league are just utilizing the fact that, okay, well, I'll give up some strikeouts. I'll do that. Or um, all this kind of stuff, giving up your weaknesses for to utilizing and capitalizing on your strengths. And I think that's how um, you saw a little power surge this year. Whether that'll be sustainable, I don't know. But uh, but it was this year, and it was pretty cool to see. And I'll follow up Ben's very technical uh, inside baseball question with one of my own. You've made headlines over the past couple of years for your hair. Where's the hair at right now, and what's the plan for next season? You know what? I, they started that, I think, my rookie year. I grew my hair out. And uh, just so happened when I got called up, my hair was It looked good. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, just, I don't know. It just is one of those things that, that stuck for a while. I cut it off, and it just kept sticking. And everybody for a couple of years thought I still had long hair, and I didn't. And I don't know. That's kind of been a kind of been a thing. Uh, it's kind of embarrassing sometimes, but uh, especially when Chris Rose or any of those guys get after it. But, but at the same time, it's uh, – there's a hat on right now. There's a hat on the whole off season because uh, I'll be in a deer stand. I'm not worried about gelling my hair. <laughs> All right. Well, hitting 42 home runs must be tiring. That's a lot of rounding the bases. So we hope that you enjoy your off season's rest between now and spring training and enjoyed talking to you. Thanks, Brian. All right, guys. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. All right. You can find Brian on Twitter at Brian Dozier, and you can also find him on a major league baseball field. All right, so thank you to Brian for taking the time. Are we wishing him well in the blind, or are we rooting for Bambi? I don't know. I think I'm I'm rooting for him. Yeah, I'm like I'm I'm a fuzzy lefty. I'm not I'm not that fuzzy. <laughs> okay. All right, so we will be back with another show, probably pre Thanksgiving next week. So we will talk to you then. Have a nice weekend. <laughs> <laughs>